0: Chapter six of Behind a Mask This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett Behind a Mask or A Woman's Power By Louisa May Alcott Chapter Six On the Watch If you please, Mr. Coventry, did you get the letter last night? were the first words that greeted the young master as he left his room the next morning. "'What letter, Dean? I don't remember any,' he answered, pausing, for something in the maid's manner struck him as peculiar. "'It came just as you left for the hall, sir. Benson ran after you with it, as it was marked haste. Didn't you get it, sir?' said the woman anxiously. "'Yes, but upon my life I forgot all about it till this minute. It's in my other coat, I suppose—if I've not lost it. That absurd masquerading put everything else out of my head." And speaking more to himself than to the maid, Coventry turned back to look for the missing letter. Dean remained where she was, apparently busy about the arrangement of the curtains at the hall window, but furtively watching meanwhile with a most unwonted air of curiosity. "'Not there, I thought so,' she muttered as Coventry impatiently thrust his hand into one pocket after another, but as she spoke an expression of amazement appeared in her face, for suddenly the letter was discovered. "'I'd have sworn it wasn't there. I don't understand it. But she's a deep one or I'm much deceived.' And Dean shook her head like one perplexed, but not convinced. Coventry uttered an exclamation of satisfaction on glancing at the address, and standing where he was, tore open the letter. "'Dear C., I'm off to Baden. Come and join me, then you'll be out of harm's way. For if you fall in love with J. M., and you can't escape if you stay where she is, you will incur the trifling inconvenience of having your brains blown out by—yours truly, F. R. Sidney.'" "'The man is mad!' ejaculated Coventry, staring at the letter while an angry flush rose to his face what the deuce does he mean by writing to me in that style? Join him, not I! And as for the threat, I laugh at it. Poor Jean! This headstrong fool seems bent on tormenting her." "'Well, Dean, what are you waiting for?' he demanded, as if suddenly conscious of her presence. "'Nothing, sir. I only stopped to see if you found the letter. Beg pardon, sir.' And she was moving on, when Coventry asked with a suspicious look. What made you think it was lost? You seem to take an uncommon interest in my affairs to-day." "'Oh, no, sir, I felt a bit anxious. Benson is so forgetful, and it was me who sent him after you, for I happened to see you go out, so I felt responsible. Being marked that way, I thought it might be important, so I asked about it." "'Very well. You can go, Dean. It's all right, you see." "'I'm not so sure of that." muttered the woman as she curtsied respectfully and went away, looking as if the letter had not been found. Dean was Miss Beaufort's maid, a grave, middle-aged woman with keen eyes and a somewhat grim air. Having been long in the family, she enjoyed all the privileges of a faithful and favourite servant. She loved her young mistress, with an almost jealous affection. She watched over her with the vigilant care of a mother— and resented any attempt at interference on the part of others. At first she had pitied and liked Jean Muir, then distrusted her, and now heartily hated her, as the cause of the increased indifference of Coventry toward his cousin. Dean knew the depth of Lucia's love, and though no man in her eyes was worthy of her mistress, still having honored him with her regard, Dean felt bound to like him. And the late change in his manner disturbed the maid almost as much as it did the mistress. She watched Jean narrowly, causing that amiable creature much amusement but little annoyance, as yet, for Dean's slow English wit was no match for the subtle mind of the governess. On the preceding night, Dean had been sent up to the hall with costumes and had there seen something which much disturbed her. She began to speak of it while undressing her mistress, but Lucia, being in an unhappy mood, had so sternly ordered her not to gossip that the tale remained untold, and she was forced to bide her tune. "'Now I'll see how she looks after it, though there's not much to be got out of her face, the deceitful hussy,' thought Dean, marching down the corridor and knitting her black brows as she went. Good morning, Mrs. Dean. I hope you're none for the worse for last night's frolic. You had the work and we the play.' said a blithe young voice behind her, and turning sharply she confronted Miss Muir. Fresh and smiling, the governess nodded with an air of cordiality, which would have been irresistible with any one but Dean. "'I'm quite well, thank you, miss,' she returned coldly, as her keen eye fastened on the girl as if to watch the effect of her words. "'I had a good rest when the young ladies and gentlemen were at supper, for while the maids cleared up I sat in the little ante-room.' Yes, I saw you, and feared you'd take cold. Very glad you didn't. How is Miss Beaufort? She seemed rather poorly last night was the tranquil reply as Jean settled the little frills about her delicate wrists. The cool question was a return shot for Dean's hint that she had been where she could oversee the interview between Coventry and Miss Muir. She is a bit tired, as any lady would be after such an evening. People who are used to play-acting wouldn't mind it, perhaps. But Miss Beaufort don't enjoy romps as much as some do." The emphasis upon certain words made Dean's speech as impertinent as she desired. But Jean only laughed, and as Coventry's step was heard behind them, she ran downstairs, saying blandly, but with a wicked look, "'I won't stop to thank you now, lest Mr. Coventry should bid me good-morning, and so increase Miss Beaufort's indisposition." Dean's eyes flashed as she looked after the girl with a wrathful face, and went her way, saying grimly, "'I'll bide my time, but I'll get the better of her yet." Fancying himself quite removed from last night's absurdity, yet curious to see how Jean would meet him, Coventry lounged into the breakfast-room with his usual air of listless indifference. A language, nod, and murmur was all the reply he vouchsafed the greetings of cousin, sister, and governess, as he sat down and took up his paper. "'Have you had a letter from Ned?' asked Bella, looking at the note which her brother still held. "'No,' was the brief answer. "'Who, then? You look as if you had received bad news.' There was no reply, and peeping over his arm Bella caught sight of the seal and exclaimed in a disappointed tone. Oh, it is the Sydney crest. i don't care about the note now. Men's letters to each other are not interesting." Miss Muir had been quietly feeding one of Edward's dogs, but at the name she looked up and met Coventry's eyes, coloring so distressfully that he pitied her. Why he should take the trouble to cover her confusion he did not stop to ask himself, but seeing the curl of Lucia's lip he suddenly addressed her with an air of displeasure. Do you know that Dean is getting impertinent? She presumes too much on her age and your indulgence, and forgets her place." "'What has she done?' asked Lucia, coldly. "'She troubles herself about my affairs, and takes it upon herself to keep Benson in order." Here Coventry told about the letter, and the woman's evident curiosity. "'Poor Dean! She gets no thanks for reminding you of what you had forgotten. Next time she will leave your letters to their fate, and perhaps it will be as well, if they have such a bad effect upon your temper, Gerald." Lucia spoke calmly, but there was an angry color in her cheek as she rose and left the room. Coventry looked much annoyed, for on Jean's face he detected a faint smile, half pitiful, half satirical, which disturbed him more than his cousin's insinuation. Bella broke the awkward silence by saying with a sigh, Poor Ned! I do so long to hear from him again. I thought a letter had come for some of us. Dean said she saw one bearing his writing on the hall table yesterday. She seems to have a mania for inspecting letters. I won't allow it. Who was the letter for, Bella?" said Coventry, putting down his paper. She wouldn't or couldn't tell, but looked very cross, and told me to ask you. "'Very odd. I've had none,' began Coventry but I had one several days ago. Will you please read it, and my reply?" And as she spoke, Jean laid two letters before him. "'Certainly not. It would be dishonourable to read what Ned intended for no eyes but your own. You were too scrupulous in one way, and not enough so in another, Miss Muir.' And Coventry offered both the letters with an air of grave decision, which could not conceal the interest and surprise he felt. "'You are right mr edward's note should be kept sacred for in it the poor boy has laid bare his heart to me but mine i beg you will read that you may see how well i try to keep my word to you oblige me in this mr coventry i have a right to ask it of you so urgently she spoke so wistfully she looked that he could not refuse and going to the window read the letter it was evidently in an answer to a passionate appeal from the young lover and was written with consummate skill. As he read, Gerald could not help thinking, "'If this girl writes in this way to a man whom she does not love, with what a world of power and passion would she write to one whom she did love?' And this thought kept returning to him as his eye went over line after line of wise argument, gentle reproof, good counsel, and friendly regard. Here and there a word, a phrase, betrayed what she had already confessed and coventry forgot to return the letter as he stood wondering who was the man whom jean loved the sound of bella's voice recalled him for she was saying half kindly half petulantly don't look so sad jean ned will outlive it i dare say you remember you said once men never died of love though women might in his one note to me he spoke so beautifully of you and begged me to be kind to you for his sake That I try to be with all my heart, though if it was any one but you, I really think I should hate them for making my dear boy so unhappy. You are too kind, Bella, and I often think I'll go away to relieve you of my presence, but unwise and dangerous as it is to say, I haven't the courage to go. I've been so happy here." And as she spoke, Jean's head dropped lower over the dog as it nestled to her affectionately. Before Bella could utter half the loving words that sprang to her lips, Coventry came to them with all languor gone from face and mien, and laying Jean's letter before her, he said, with an undertone of deep feeling in his usually emotionless voice, A right womanly and eloquent letter, but I fear it will only increase the fire it was meant to quench. I pity my brother more than ever now." "'Shall I send it?' asked Jean, looking straight up at him like one who had entire reliance on his judgment. "'Yes, I have not the heart to rob him of such a sweet sermon upon self-sacrifice. Shall I post it for you?' "'Thank you. In a moment.' And with a grateful look Jean dropped her eyes. Producing her little purse, she selected a penny, folded it in a bit of paper, and then offered both letter and coin to Coventry, with such a pretty air of business that he could not control a laugh so you won't be indebted to me for a penny. What a proud woman you are, Miss Muir!' "'I am. It's a family feeling,' and she gave him a significant glance, which recalled to him the memory of who she was. He understood her feeling, and liked her the better for it, knowing that he would have done the same had he been in her place. It was a little thing, but if done for effect, it answered admirably, for it showed a quick insight into his character on her part, and betrayed to him the existence of a pride in which he sympathized heartily. He stood by Jean a moment, watching her as she burnt Edward's letter in the blaze of the spirit-lamp under the urn. "'Why do you do that?' he asked involuntarily. "'Because it is my duty to forget,' was all her answer. "'Can you always forget when it becomes a duty?' "'I wish I could—I wish I could—' She spoke passionately, as if the words broke from her against her will, and rising hastily she went into the garden, as if afraid to stay. Poor dear Jean is very unhappy about something, but I can't discover what it is. Last night I found her crying over a rose, and now she runs away looking as if her heart was broken. I'm glad I've got no lessons." What kind of a rose? asked Coventry from behind his paper, as Bella paused. A lovely white one. It must have come from the hall. We have none like it. I wonder if Jean was ever going to be married, and lost her lover, and felt sad because the flower reminded her of bridal roses. Coventry made no reply, but felt himself change countenance as he recalled the little scene behind the rose-hedge, where he gave Jean the flower which she had refused, yet taken. Presently, to Bella's surprise, he flung down the paper, tore Sidney's note to Atoms, and rang for his horse with an energy which amazed her. "'Why, Gerald, what has come over you? One would think Ned's restless spirit had suddenly taken possession of you. What are you going to do?' "'I'm going to work,' was the unexpected answer, as Coventry turned toward her with an expression so rarely seen on his fine face. "'What has waked you up all at once?' asked Bella, looking more and more amazed. "'You did,' he said, drawing her toward him. "'I? When? How?' "'Do you remember saying once that energy was better than beauty in a man, and that no one could respect an idler?' "'I never said anything half so sensible as that. Jean said something like it once, I believe, but I forgot.' Are you tired of doing nothing at last, Gerald?" "'Yes. I neglected my duty to Ned, till he got into trouble, and now I reproach myself for it. It's not too late to do other neglected tasks, so I'm going at them with a will. Don't say anything about it to any and don't laugh at me, for I'm in earnest, Belle." "'I know you are, and I admire and love you for it, my dear old boy cried Bella enthusiastically, as she threw her arms about his neck, and kissed him heartily. "'What will you do first? she asked, as he stood thoughtfully smoothing the bright head that leaned upon his shoulder, with that new expression still clear and steady in his face. "'I am going to ride over the whole estate, and attend to things as a master should—not leave it all to Bent, of whom I have heard many complaints, but have been too idle to inquire about them. I shall consult uncle, and endeavour to be all that my father was in his time. Is that a worthy ambition, dear?" "'Oh, Gerald, let me tell Mama. It'll make her so happy. You are her idol, and to hear you say these things, and to see you look so like dear Papa, would do more for her spirits than all the doctors in England." "'Wait till I prove what my resolution is worth. When I have really done something, then I'll surprise Mama with a sample of my work. Of course you'll tell Lucia." "'Not on any account. It is a little secret between us, so keep it till I give you leave to tell it." "'But Jean will see it at once. She knows everything that happens. She is so quick and wise. Do you mind her knowing?' "'I don't see that I can help it if she is so wonderfully gifted. Let her see what she can, I don't mind her. Now I'm off." And with a kiss to his sister, a sudden smile on his face. Coventry sprang upon his horse and rode away at a pace which caused the groom to stare after him in blank amazement. Nothing more was seen of him till dinner-time, when he came in so exhilarated by his brisk ride and busy morning that he found some difficulty in assuming his customary manner, and more than once astonished the family by talking animatedly on various subjects which till now had always seemed utterly uninteresting to him. Lucia was amazed, his mother delighted, and Bella could hardly control her desire to explain the mystery. But Jean took it very calmly, and regarded him with the air of one who said, "'I understand, but you will soon tire of it.' This nettled him more than he would confess, and he exerted himself to silently contradict that prophecy. "'Have you answered Mr. Sidney's letter?' asked Bella, when they were all scattered about the drawing-room after dinner. "'No.' answered her brother, who was pacing up and down with restless steps, instead of lounging near his beautiful cousin. "'I ask because I remembered that Ned sent a message for him in my last note, as though he thought you would know Sidney's address. Here it is—something about a horse. Please put it in when you write.' And Bella laid the note on the writing-table near by. "'I'll send it at once and have done with it,' muttered Coventry, and seating himself he dashed off a few lines sealed and sent the letter, and then resumed his march, eyeing the three young ladies with three different expressions as he passed and repassed. Lucia sat apart, feigning to be intent upon a book, and her handsome face looked almost stern in its haughty composure, for though her heart ached, she was too proud to own it. Bella now lay on the sofa half asleep, a rosy little creature, as unconsciously pretty as a child. Miss Muir sat in the recess of a deep window, in a low lounging chair, working at an embroidery frame with a graceful industry pleasant to see. Of late she had worn colours, for Bella had been generous in gifts, and the pale blue muslin which flowed in soft waves about her was very becoming to her fair skin and golden hair. The close braids were gone, and loose curls dropped here and there from the heavy coil wound around her well-shaped head. The tip of one dainty foot was visible, and a petulant little gesture which now and then shook back the falling sleeve, gave glimpses of a round white arm. Ned's great hound lay near by, the sunshine flickered on her through the leaves, and as she sat smiling to herself, while the dexterous hands shaped leaf and flower, she made a charming picture of all that is most womanly and winning, a picture which few men's eyes would not have liked to rest upon. Another chair stood near her, and as Coventry went up and down a strong desire to take it possessed him. He was tired of his thoughts and wished to be amused by watching the changes of the girl's expressive face, listening to the varying tones of her voice, and trying to discover the spell which so strongly attracted him in spite of himself. More than once he swerved from his course to gratify his whim, but Lucia's presence always restrained him and with a word to the dog, or a glance from the window as a pretext for a pause, he resumed his walk again. Something in his cousin's face reproached him, but her manner of late was so repellent that he felt no desire to resume their former familiarity, and wishing to show that he did not consider himself bound, he kept aloof. It was a quiet test of the power of each woman over this man. They instinctively felt it, and both tried to conquer. Lucia spoke several times, and tried to speak frankly and affably, but her manner was constrained, and Coventry, having answered politely, relapsed into silence. Jean said nothing, but silently appealed to eye and ear by the pretty picture she made of herself, the snatches of song she softly sang, as if forgetting that she was not alone, and a shy glance now and then, half wistful, half merry which was more alluring than graceful figure or sweet voice. When she had tormented Lucia and tempted Coventry long enough, she quietly asserted her supremacy in a way which astonished her rival, who knew nothing of the secret of her birth, which knowledge did much to attract and charm the young man. Letting a ball of silk escape from her lap, she watched it roll toward the promenader, who caught and returned it with an alacrity which added grace to the trifling service. As she took it, she said in the frank way that never failed to win him, "'I think you must be tired. But if exercise is necessary, employ your energies to some purpose, and put your mother's basket of silks in order. They are in a tangle, and it will please her to know that she did it, as your brother used to do.' "'Hercules at the distaff,' said Coventry gaily, and down he sat in the long-desired seat. Jean put the basket on his knee, and as he surveyed it, as if daunted at his task, she leaned back, and indulged in a musical little peal of laughter charming to hear. Lucia sat dumb with surprise to see her proud, indolent cousin obeying the commands of a governess, and looking as if he heartily enjoyed it. In ten minutes she was as entirely forgotten as if she had been miles away, for Jean seemed in her wittiest, gayest mood, and as she now treated the young master like an equal there was none of the former meek timidity. Yet often her eyes fell, her colour changed, and the piquant sallies faltered on her tongue, as Coventry involuntarily looked deep into the fine eyes which had once shone on him so tenderly in that mimic tragedy. He could not forget it, and though neither alluded to it, the memory of the previous evening seemed to haunt both and lend a secret charm to the present moment. Lucia bore this as long as she could, and then left the room with the air of an insulted princess. But Coventry did not, and Jean feigned not to see her go. Bella was fast asleep, and before he knew how it came to pass, the young man was listening to the story of his companion's life. A sad tale, told with wonderful skill, for soon he was absorbed in it. The basket slid unobserved from his knee, the dog was pushed away— and leaning forward, he listened eagerly as the girl's low voice recounted all the hardships, loneliness, and grief of her short life. In the midst of a touching episode, she started, stopped, and looked straight before her, with an intent expression which changed to one of intense contempt, and her eye turned to Coventry's, as she said, pointing to the window behind him, "'We are watched.' "'By whom?' he demanded, starting up angrily. "'Hush! Say nothing. Let it pass. I am used to it.' "'But I am not, and I'll not submit to it. Who was it, Jean?' he answered hotly. She smiled significantly at a knot of rose-colored ribbon which a little gust was blowing toward them along the terrace. A black frown darkened the young man's face as he sprang out of the long window and went rapidly out of sight scrutinizing each green nook as he passed. Jean laughed quietly as she watched him, and said softly to herself, with her eyes on the fluttering ribbon, "'That was a fortunate accident, and a happy inspiration. Yes, my dear Mrs. Dean, you will find that playing the spy will only get your mistress as well as yourself into trouble. You would not be warned, and you must take the consequences, reluctant as I am to injure a worthy creature like yourself.' Soon Coventry was heard returning. Jean listened with suspended breath to catch his first words, for he was not alone. "'Since you insist that it was you and not your mistress, I let it pass, although I still have my suspicions. Tell Miss Beaufort I desire to see her for a few moments in the library. Now go, Dean, and be careful for the future—if you wish to stay in my house.' The maid retired and the young man came in looking both ireful and stern. "'I wish I had said nothing, but I was startled, and spoke involuntarily. "'Now you are angry, and I have made fresh trouble for poor Miss Lucia. "'Forgive me as I forgive her, and let it pass. "'I have learned to bear this surveillance, and pity her causeless jealousy,' said Jean, with a self-reproachful air. "'I will forgive the dishonourable act, but I cannot forget it, and I intend to put a stop to it. I am not betrothed to my cousin, as I told you once. But you, like all the rest, seem bent on believing that I am. Hitherto I have cared too little about the matter to settle it. But now I shall prove beyond all doubt that I am free." As he uttered the last word, Coventry cast on Jean a look that affected her strangely. She grew pale, her work dropped on her lap— and her eyes rose to his with an eager, questioning expression, which slowly changed to one of mingled pain and pity as she turned her face away, murmuring in a tone of tender sorrow, "'Poor Lucia! Who will comfort her?' For a moment Coventry stood silent, as if weighing some fateful purpose in his mind. As Jean's rapt sigh of compassion reached his ear, he had echoed it within himself, and half repented of his resolution— Then his eye rested on the girl before him, looking so lonely in her sweet sympathy for another, that his heart yearned toward her. Sudden fire shot into his eye, sudden warmth replaced the cold sternness of his face, and his steady voice faltered suddenly as he said, very low, yet very earnestly, "'Jean, I have tried to love her, but I cannot. Ought I to deceive her, and make myself miserable to please my family?' "'She is beautiful, and good, and loves you tenderly. Is there no hope for her?' asked Jean, still pale but very quiet, though she held one hand against her heart, as if to still or hide its rapid beating. "'None,' answered Coventry. "'But can you not learn to love her? Your will is strong, and most men would not find it a hard task.' "'I cannot.' for something stronger than my own will controls me." "'What is that?' And Jean's dark eyes were fixed upon him, full of innocent wonder. His fell, and he said hastily, "'I dare not tell you yet.' "'Pardon, I should not have asked. Do not consult me in this matter. I am not the person to advise you. I can only say it, it seems to me, as if any man with an empty heart would be glad to have so beautiful a woman as your cousin." "'My heart is not empty,' began Coventry, drawing a step nearer, and speaking in a passionate voice. "'Jean, I must speak. Hear me. I cannot love my cousin, because—I love you. Stop!' And Jean sprang up with a commanding gesture. I will not hear you while any promise binds you to another. Remember your mother's wishes, Lucia's hopes, Edward's last words, your own pride, my humble lot. You forget yourself, Mr. Coventry. Think well before you speak, weigh the cost of this act, and recollect who I am before you insult me by any transient passion, any false vows." I have thought I do weigh the cost, and I swear that I desire to woo you as humbly honestly as I would any lady in the land. You speak of my pride. Do I stoop in loving my equal in rank? You speak of your lowly lot, but poverty is no disgrace, and the courage with which you bear it makes it beautiful. I should have broken with Lucia before I spoke, but I could not control myself. My mother loves you, and will be happy in my happiness. Edward must forgive me, for I have tried to do my best. But love is irresistible." Tell me, Jean, is there any hope for me?" He had seized her hand and was speaking impetuously, with ardent face and tender tone, but no answer came, for as Jean turned her eloquent countenance toward him, full of maiden shame and timid love, Dean's prim figure appeared at the door, and her harsh voice broke the momentary silence, saying sternly, "'Miss Beaufort is waiting for you, sir.' "'Go at once. "'And be kind for my sake, Gerald,' whispered Jean, for he stood as if deaf and blind to everything but her voice, her face. As she drew his head down to whisper, her cheek touched his, and regardless of Dean, he kissed it, passionately, whispering back, "'My little Jean, for your sake I can be anything.' "'Miss Beaufort is waiting. Shall I say you will come, sir?' demanded Dean, pale and grim with indignation, "'Yes, yes, I'll come. Wait for me in the garden, Jean.' And Coventry hurried away, in no mood for the interview, but anxious to have it over. As the door closed behind him, Dean walked up to Miss Muir, trembling with anger, and laying a heavy hand on her arm, said below her breath, "'I've been expecting this, you artful creature.' I saw your game, and did my best to spoil it, but you were too quick for me. You think you've got him. There you are mistaken, for as sure as my name is Hester Dean I'll prevent it, or Sir John shall. Take your hand away, and treat ye with proper respect, or you'll be dismissed from this house. Do you know who I am?" And Jean drew herself up with a haughty air which impressed the woman more deeply than her words. I am the daughter of Lady Howard, and if I choose it can be the wife of Mr. Coventry." Dean drew back amazed, yet not convinced. Being a well-trained servant as well as a prudent woman, she feared to overstep the bounds of respect, to go too far, and get her mistress as well as herself into trouble. So though she still doubted Jean, and hated her more than ever, she controlled herself. Dropping a curtsey, she assumed her usual air of deference and said meekly, "'I beg pardon, miss—if I'd known, I should have conducted myself differently, of course. But ordinary governesses make so much mischief in a house, one can't help mistrusting them. I don't wish to meddle or be overbold, but being fond of my dear young lady, I naturally take her part, and must say that Mr. Coventry has not acted like a gentleman.' "'Think what you please, Dean, but I advise you to say as little as possible, if you wish to remain." I have not accepted Mr. Coventry yet, and if he chooses to set aside the engagement his family made for him, I think he has a right to do so. Miss Beaufort would hardly care to marry him against his will, because he pities her for unhappy love. And with a tranquil smile Miss Muir walked away. End of chapter 6